Good evening. Welcome back. Let's locate ourselves in Matthew chapter 20 this evening. Matthew chapter 20. Several of Jesus' parables were spoken and then written to give clarity to the concept of the kingdom, to define the kingdom, and to inform listeners of some aspect of the kingdom. This has always been necessary. In the time when Jesus first came in contact with the Jewish people, and the Jews first met Jesus and heard him, it was of chief importance for them to understand what Jesus meant when he spoke of the kingdom. Today, in popular religious circles, there isn't any question people are confused about what the kingdom is. Even among us, we must be careful to speak of the kingdom in terms that comport with what the Bible says. Many of the parables respond to this need to provide good instruction for us about what the kingdom is. Now, no single parable is comprehensive. I mean, there is no single parable that tells you everything there is to know about the kingdom in the span of a few verses or a paragraph. This parable in Matthew chapter 20 certainly doesn't say everything there is to say about the kingdom, but the focus is on one main point we need to get. Let's together tonight find that one main point, and it will lead us in several good directions of study and thought and application. Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and find others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me 
For a denarius, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Start, please, with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus, when he spoke of the kingdom, never compared it to any existing religious or political organization. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he never compared it to any existing religious organization or government. Because he was talking about something that wasn't like what they were familiar with. It wasn't like the Roman Empire. It wasn't like the Jewish religious empire. It was not like the synagogue system. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was talking about people in relation to God. People seem so confused about kingdom terminology in the New Testament, but it isn't complicated. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was talking about people in relation to God. May I establish that? Luke 17.21 and John 18.36. Luke 17.21, the kingdom is within you. John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. And then add to that Paul's statement in Colossians 1.13, that upon obedience to the gospel, one is transferred, one is transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So the kingdom is composed of people who live under the rule of God. There's your definition. There's your clarity. Now, here in Matthew 20, Jesus tells this story to illustrate something we need to know about the kingdom. About what? About the kingdom. People in relation to God. And here is a story that begins in an ordinary way, like many parables. A narrative common to that time and place that people could identify with. A master of a house needs workers in his field. And so he went out early in the morning to hire what we would call day laborers. Think of this as people who may not have a profession or regular employment they work as opportunity presents itself. Temporary employees are day laborers. Those hired in the morning agree to the wage that is offered. Now, that becomes a very important part of the story later, so mark it down and remember this, that those hired early in the morning agreed to the wage offered. The vineyard owner or master of the house, then three hours later noticed others who were unemployed, standing idle in the marketplace. And to these he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Underline that phrase, it becomes important later, 
whatever is right as defined by the one doing the hiring who's going to be doing the paying, whatever is right. Now, at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the same thing happens. That is, the master took on others in the work crew. And then, at almost the end of the work day, he found others unemployed, idle in the marketplace, and he put them to work. And that brings us down to the end of verse 7. And I want to pause here at the end of verse 7 at this point. Right before pay is distributed, what do you think the typical payroll accounting department today would do? I want you to think about that a moment. The typical payroll department today, at the end of verse 7, before we go any further, what do you think the typical accounting department would say? It would not be unusual for the payroll department to say something like this. Pay the men who worked a full day a full day's wage. Pay the others prorated in keeping with the lesser hours that they worked. So those who worked the least hours would receive the least pay. And I think in our economic system, this would seem to be the best practice. It is probably common, I think, in some workplaces, there is a clock. When I worked in a factory one summer before college, I know that's hard for you to imagine, the factory part of it. I worked in a factory one summer before college, and I had a card, and I would go in the door and take the card and clock in, and then at the end of the shift, I would clock out. And the pay was calculated strictly by the readings on the time clock. That's probably standard practice. And it's probably considered fair. But here's where the story Jesus is telling takes a turn in a direction that is not common. Let's start at 8 and go to 16. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Well, this doesn't seem to be the way we expect wages to be distributed. And so the first time you read the parable, you may have an issue with it before you look any further. 
This is not the way we expect wages to be distributed. We read this and we think this is not what usually happens. Well, the workers who put in the full day not only thought the way we may think when we first read it, they expressed it. They were upset. Verse 11 says they grumbled at the master of the house. This was a worker's protest. This was a worker's protest. Here's a paraphrase from the contemporary English version. They said, the ones who were hired last worked for only one hour. But you paid them the same that you did us. And we worked in the hot sun all day long. Now, at verse 13, the masters reply, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You remember I, I said we needed to mark that. We noted back at verse 2 that the early workers agreed to the wage that was offered. They were paid exactly what they agreed to. If the master wanted to pay workers who put in less time the same amount, whose business was that? It was his business, not the early workers. There is envy and snooping around in modern workplaces sometimes. There are efforts that may seem to be subtle and in some cases be very open to compare wages and salary and protest if you think you're receiving less than you should in comparison with somebody else. But according to this, if you are paid what you agreed to and the boss wants to pay others more for whatever reason, just his simple generosity, should that be your concern? See, there is in our society actually some regulation about all of this from a government department. Have you ever heard of the wage and our division of the Department of Labor. So because of all that, <coughs> that we have in mind, we may be sympathetic with the early workers and believe that they were slighted when we compare their wages to the same amount paid to the guys who came on at the last hour. So here is a question that, that's going to take us to the heart of the parable. Why did the master do this? And we can break that down into two questions. Why were the first to work paid last? And second, why were all paid the same amount when they didn't all work the same hours? Why did the master do it this way? Now, there's one word in the parable that's the answer to that. Have you seen it yet? There's one word in the parable that is the answer to our inquiry. Our inquiry is, why did the master do this? It doesn't always work out like this in the flow of the Lord's parables. But in this case, the question raised by the story is answered by one word spoken by Jesus. Why did the master do it this way? I want you to look in verse 15. 
in the English Standard Version that I'm using, there is one word that answers our question. Generosity. Generosity. If the master wanted to be generous, no employee had any right to begrudge that generosity. The master was under no obligation, moral or legal, to justify his generosity. Likewise, the order of distribution, that is where you are in the line, that's within the will of the master. The last were paid first and the first last. Which, by the way, is a statement found before the parable and after the parable. Before the parable, it's in chapter 19, verse 30. Chapter 19, verse 30, it's there. And then after the parable, it's at twenty sixteen. The master can do as he wants. So the master's will to be generous stands out in the parable. Now... You remember, this is a kingdom parable. So it says something about people in relation to God. Now we're going to get into application. May we never fail to recognize God's sovereignty. That is, His right to distribute favors and blessings as He pleases accountable to nobody. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty must be recognized. His right to distribute favors and blessings as He please, is pleased, accountable to nobody. That's the main point of this parable. <clears throat> when God gives to His workers in that final day of distribution, let all protests be silent. There will be no right of anybody to grumble when God distributes and gives to His workers. There will be no right to grumble. No appeal born of envy will be heard. God will do as He pleases because He is generous. And we cannot get into the details of God's generosity and advise Him about it. God will do as He pleases according to His grace, His generosity, without any need to consult any of us. Can you imagine this scene, final judgment? And you say to God something like this. Now, Lord... I was baptized when I was 13. I have prayed tens of thousands of prayers. I have converted over a hundred people. I gave way over 10% of what I have every Sunday. I had perfect attendance except that day that I had the flu. There was never a warrant out for my arrest, Lord. I abided by the law. I fed all the preachers who came to town. And my beautiful voice was the highlight of every song service. But Lord, here is this person over here, actually in front of, in front of me in line. Here is this person over here. They were only baptized last year. 
right before they died, Lord. Lord, are you going to give him the same as you're giving me? I don't think we're going to be inclined to make such an argument, do you? Let all protests be silent. There will be no right to grumble, no appeal born of envy. God will do as he pleases according to his grace, his abundant generosity without any need to consult us about what is right or what is fair or what we claim we deserve because of all the preachers we've fed. May we never fail to recognize God's sovereignty, that is, His right to distribute favors and blessings as He is pleased, accountable to nobody. While that is the main point of the parable, it leads to other related things I want to bring up. We should avoid, I'm going to take us to Ephesians 2 here in a moment. We should avoid the work for wages spirit. The work for wages spirit. In our view of salvation, while work and obedience produced by faith is essential in our response to God. If you think our work earns us a right to enter into heaven and before entering, issue our complaints to the Lord. If you think your attendance and contribution and prayers put God in debt to you and that you can stand before him and make claims that you're not getting enough, you're just wrong about that. Work and obedience produced by faith is essential, but without grace, we would still be lost. We do not have sufficient work to offer to God to merit or earn salvation. We are receivers of a gift, not earners of wages independent of grace. Ephesians 2. And you were dead... In trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where were we before we obeyed the gospel? We were dead. Dead in sin. 
God took us out of sin when we responded to the cross. We continue to respond by the good works produced by faith. But the strict work for wages system is here denied when it says by grace you have been saved. God will do as he pleases according to his grace for which we should be thankful. His generosity and his generosity carries on from his sovereignty without any need to consult us or listen to any protest. And if you want God to pay you an exact proportion to your work without mercy, if you want absolute justice, you're ruling out grace. And Paul said, it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. We are receivers of a gift, and we keep that gift by the good works of faith, but without ever having any right of protest to the Master. Please, one more thing. Why are you serving God? Why am I serving God? Not so I can get more than somebody else. These comparisons, this envy, that isn't it. The motive ought to be, we love God, we believe and love Jesus Christ, we accept fully what was written by the Holy Spirit. We want to go to heaven and we're going to do everything we can as products of our faith in Christ. If somebody finally comes to Christ and is baptized four days before they die, I need to rejoice, not complain. Someone said, God doesn't pay us by the hour. He pays us by the heart. He gives us what we couldn't ever have if we worked every hour for Him from baptism until death. If I worked every hour for God from baptism until death without any flaw at all, still it would be so. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Notice that phrase in the parable, whatever is right. God always does whatever is right. Let all protests be silent. There will be no right to grumble, no appeal born of envy. God will do as He pleases. According to His grace, His abundant generosity, without any need to consult us or any man about what is right, and what is fair. May we never fail to recognize God's sovereignty, that is, His right to distribute favors as He pleases, accountable to nobody. Can you imagine someone protesting? We were first. We worked longer than the others. We prayed more prayers. We sung more songs. If you think you are serving God so you will be paid more than others, that you have some privilege of tenure that puts you in the front of the line, here's a reading assignment, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. All right.
Let's be standing as we sing.